So I'm excited to talk about today's film because we are finally getting to the history of our home state of Kansas. Yeah. Which I had actually forgotten about when, so I put at some point in the past to put Santa Fe Trail on the timeline. It starts in 1854 and covers about six, seven years here. But I had forgotten until just before watching it, they're like, oh, it's about Kansas. Like this film is set mostly in Kansas. Which, not a lot of movies can say that. And, I mean, the most most famous, quote, Kansas movie people think of is probably The Wizard of Oz, which is not actually set in Kansas outside of the beginning and the end because it's mostly in a fictional land of Oz. (laughs) Right, yeah. So this this one's another one in the category of not highly reviewed, but kind of enough to where it was probably worth watching for this project and i do think it was uh it has definitely some interesting stuff that we can talk about here with bleeding kansas and there is some things that they get right but there's also some things they get very very wrong what stood out the most to me was the tone it's tricky because basically the abolitionists are the bad guys yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's so strange in this movie it's like John Brown is the villain of this movie. So, you know, he's tricky because you could you could argue that John Brown was just a terrorist fighting for a good cause, but that doesn't make him any less a terrorist versus what I think irks me more was they kind of made it sound like anybody who wanted to pressure the South, even economically, into abolishing slavery was bad because they were causing trouble. And the movie saw that vibe. Terrorism aside, right. with the violent John Brown, even pacifist pressuring was going to be viewed as the bad guy in this film, which, man, is uh, yeah, does not hold up well. And there's a uh, there's even a there's a line where Jeb Stewart tells Custer something along the lines. Well, basically, the gist of the line is, "Thank goodness we don't let a pesky little thing like slavery come in the way of our friendship, huh, buddy?" Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Like, you might hear someone talk about, you know, any other, like, political issue. Like, oh, well, y- you know, we-, we have political differences, but we c- we're we still buddy, we're still pals. But the thing that they're talking about is slavery. Or, you're a Chiefs fan and I'm a Raiders fan, but we can still get along. Right, but they're talking about slavery. Yeah. And, like, and it's, and it's framed in a way that's, like, and that's the two heroes of the movie talking. Right, and it's not like this film didn't have the the benefit of hindsight. This movie's not made in the 1850s. It's made in the, in 1940. Right. Which means they know yeah. that slavery went away and that the North won and that I thought we were in agreement by 1940 that slavery was bad. Yeah. Oh, and also not only do we have, you know, famous Confederate general Jeb Stewart is the hero of the movie and famous abolitionist John Brown is the villain and all of the, you know, the weird messaging on slavery. Also, Jefferson Davis is portrayed very positively, as is Robert E. Lee, a whole handful of other Confederate generals, which I'll talk about later. But yeah, it's it's weird. And I do think there is some nuance in that still, both with, well, honestly, there's probably less nuance with the filmmaking kind of being odd in its position. But I think there is nuance with these historical figures and, and and we will we will get to that yeah and it's one of those things where too i, I man <laughs> this is I think we feel like we're walking on glass here 
But I, I do want to say, like, when you bring things to, like, the modern view of it, obviously the official history film position is uh, anti-slavery. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, oh, right, yeah, 100%. <laughs> but, like, even... So here's... I'm also pro taking down Confederate statues when they were put up well after the war and were done so as a middle finger to black people in those places to remind them to keep in their place. And it was almost even done like very passive aggressively. So like I'm all for taking them down, but we also don't want to get rid of history and that, but also that can have its place in museums. We don't want to, we don't don't want to deify people that were maybe fighting for an abhorrent cause. But at the same time, those people were also just people and not every white person who lived in the South was evil, even if they supported right. the evil practice of slavery. And it made that sure. maybe an okay yeah. way to say it. And, and maybe it's not too different from Hitler, bad guy, average German soldier who was just kind of caught up with it because of geography. Yeah, technically a Nazi, but like they're a person. And with, I, I don't know, man, it's nuanced. But also, they're, yeah, when you, when you get down to the foot soldiers, it, it is more of a person-by-person thing. Right, and I shouldn't probably equate the South to Nazis, I guess, either, but... Yeah, I don't know. It's... Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, if I have... I think I said, but I probably even said last episode, that, like, I, I have no ancestors who fought for the North in the Civil War. They all fought for the South, or were not yet in the United States. So, I'm not batching other people's heritage. It's my heritage, too. Right, I, I was gonna say the same thing. I, I, I think I'm... I'm pretty sure my family's the same way. There are no, at least that I know of, no ancestors of mine that were Union soldiers, but I know for a fact there is at least one Confederate soldier in my, in my, like, direct ancestry, so. Right, right, and I had, I had several, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and there was also weird stuff in this movie about making slavery out to be not that bad. Like, there's the raid on the their hideout or whatever in that barn and they say oh well we need to escape but we can't take all these freed slaves with us so we're just gonna you know basically they're on their own and he makes this speech about like you know now you have to go find you know we'll we'll put you in touch with these abolitionist farmers and they'll give you work but now you're gonna have to find your own way just like any other free man would and then there's like three of them that are still in the barn and end up getting kind of caught in the crossfire when Jeb Stewart is almost hanged and then after the battle when he's rescued one of the slaves is patching him up and is like oh well if someone would have told me that this was what freedom was like that i was just going to be brought out here to kansas and have to fend for myself i i wouldn't have come along in the first place and he even says i just can't wait to get back to texas right and get back to my old life it's like absolutely not a hundred percent that no, that was not happening. A hundred thousand percent no. Right. This movie is almost gaslighting the country at the time. And I guess that's another thing too, is you you forget how so Hollywood today has this reputation for being crazy liberal. We kind of forget it started not necessarily exclusively, but there was a massive conservative streak in old Hollywood and things like Birth of a Nation and, and things like that. Uh the number two lead in this movie is Ronald Reagan. Like, look no <laughs> right. further. It's right. like Exhibit A. <laughs> right. Um, who, honestly, I think he is pretty good. Like, I never really, I've, I've only seen a couple movies with Reagan in it, and he, and never ones where he's done. This is probably the biggest role I've seen Reagan in in a film. He's solid. He's not a bad actor. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's pretty charming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah, it's just weird. 
I liked his character too because it was it wasn't like with Errol Flynn where like everything that he's done everything that he does is taken so seriously and like mm. so like you know there's no room for him to be like goofy or silly but like with Reagan's character because he's he's playing Custer you know because he's not the lead he actually gets some like kind of funny moments right like where he's you know he meets that girl for the first time and it turns out that she's like talking with custer and then robert e lee and and jefferson davis are both there and he's like basically like puts his foot in his mouth because she like rats him out like oh you were telling me about how you did all of the (laughs) like you were responsible for putting down the the abolitionist rebellion or whatever in, in kansas and it was like all you and uh, Robert Lee says, oh, well, wasn't Jeb Stewart involved? Or no, her, her dad says, oh, wasn't Jeb Stewart involved with that? He goes, oh, uh, yeah, he he was uh, he was around. He was there. And he's yeah. just like super uncomfortable the whole time. Like that that stuff I thought was made his character more fun and likable, honestly, than than the Errol Flynn character. Because Errol Flynn was just, you know, so serious the whole time. You're right. You're right. The, both in the writing and in the performance, there's just a lot more charm to Reagan's character, which you wouldn't necessarily think of. Hey, who's who's going to be more charming in this film, Ronald Reagan or Errol Flynn, known swashbuckler? <laughs> it's like, no, it's Reagan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the the movie itself here is uh, again Santa Fe Tra- Trail, which the actual Santa Fe Trail uh, started in northwestern Missouri, up by where what is Kansas City today, but on the Missouri side, and it went through Kansas down southwest towards Santa Fe, New Mexico. You always think of the Santa Fe Railroad and uh, obviously, we've heard of the Santa Fe Trail all growing up. Everyone knows, you know, Santa Fe, usually associated with railroad. It was a trail before it was a railroad. And I guess as we're going through this project, so many of these things, I'm just kind of embarrassed to say I've never really put much thought into before. Like, you think of, like, Oregon Trail, the game, and people took their wagons along the Oregon Trail. But, like, I never really thought what these trails really were. But they were the interstates of, of their, their day. So there, even before there was a train route... It just makes sense if you're going to travel hundreds of miles across, you know, an unsettled, un, I hate to say unsettled because the Native American population, but there's no infrastructure, modern cities, things like that. You want right. to follow an existing trail that, one, has been proven safe, both with just geographically, like, hey, we're going to minimize the rivers and mountains we have to cross to take this trail. It's maybe being cleared out from any threat of a Native presence if we're white settlers wanting to do this. And then just... Physically, if like there's probably not even a road yet, but if like the trees have been cleared or the grass has been you know matted down by previous wagon trains, you, a trail kind of evolves over these hundreds of miles, becomes commonly used and secured, and gets a name. So this one's the Santa Fe Trail. And then when they put in the railroad after the events of this movie or at the beginning of the end of this movie, then it makes sense. Then a railroad is kind of put along the same route and kind of parallels the previous wagon train anyway just i'd never really given much thought to all these old trails and this movie kind of just helped remind me of that and our characters though are actually several guys we start out in 1854 at west point and all these guys are getting ready to graduate and they make a big point of naming them all and it's almost like it's like this who's who of who's at west point in 1954 and of course i don't know if you right. looked at all the dates that like uh yeah most of these guys were not at west point in 1854 right i i think jeb stewart is the only one that was actually in the class of 1854 at least of all the ones that i looked at i think that's right 
One was a year off. Phil Sheridan was 1853, but he's not, he's a man yeah. of role in the movie anyway. Right. And Custer wasn't until like 1861. Like he cut George Custer was 15 years old at the time of this movie. Correct. Correct. So they definitely get a lot wrong and they make a point to put these people in the movie. To, and hey, at least they did go to West Point. But it's like George Pickett. Well, he right. graduated nine, uh, eight years earlier in 1846. And it's just... Right, yeah. It, it was just weird how they shoehorned these people in. Yeah, Longstreet was even earlier than that. He graduated in 1842. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of bizarre. And then they are sent to Kansas because the whole idea is that you have... And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty here. But you have uh, these conflicts over slavery in Kansas, whether it'll be a free or a slave state. And these soldiers who just graduated west point in the movie are being sent to help quell the violence in kansas and we see them kind of get involved with the terrorist again however you want to classify him the extremist the the zealot i guess honestly zealot whether you're pro or anti john john brown's uh, actions uh zealot is probably the best way to describe him because it is definitely a religious fervor that kind of led him to to his actions and so that's kind of the film as far as what it covers, and it's just it's just basically these soldiers versus John Brown, which is weird. So John Brown, yes, abolitionist. The soldiers are not coming in in a pro-slavery uh, side of things. They're coming in more of the neutral United States, keeping the peace in Kansas. Right. And they actually, they even talk about in the movie that, like, soldiers shouldn't have political opinions. Soldiers do their duty. Right. They, that's kind of, I, I forget if it's Lee or someone says that in, in the movie. That that's not their job. It's when when Robert E. Lee, it's either in his speech to Stewart and Custer and all those guys, or when he's kicking out the fictional Carl Rader. Okay. In one of those speeches, he he talks about like, you know, soldiers aren't supposed to have well, soldiers can have political opinions, obviously he himself did because he, you know, betrayed became a traitor to America anyway, and he wasn't hanged for it like John Brown was. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about that in a later episode. But, yeah, he basically tells them that kind of, like, that overt political action of, like, distributing the pamphlets and, like, getting in fights over slavery, that has no place in the military. Yes, and they definitely paint the Raider guy. So these conflicts start in West Point, and they they have Raider pushing this abolitionist propaganda and again, it's just really off from the beginning that they're painting that as villainous. Like, this guy's causing trouble and trying to say that the South can't decide for itself how to operate. And it's just like, yeah, he's trying to get rid of slavery. And they just, the performance right. and everything about it is slimy. And they just, again, right. it, the whole film is just kind of gaslighting us that abolitionists yeah. were and, were vile. Right. And Jeb Stewart is like, well, just, you know, you might disagree with slavery and my family might actually be actively holding slaves right now, but, you know, we should settle these differences, you know, with, like, with laws and discussion and debate, and, you know, like, you want to just violently, you know, suppress the rights of Southerners to hold slaves, and that's wrong because, you know, that's, like, you know, violent coercion, and it's, like, meanwhile, in Georgia, like, every slave is being whipped every single day, and, like, but we're not going to pay no attention to that right. like jeb stewart's over here grandstanding on his soapbox about how this carl raider guy is is in the wrong for suggesting that like a violent freeing of slaves is bad and uh i'm, I'm listening to 
uh, a book right now, uh, audiobook called Founding Brothers. And so it's, it's obviously set, you know, decades before this. But the one thing it does kind of talk about with the slavery issue or they kind of hinted at was just that in broad strokes, it seems like the South may have recognized that at some point slavery was going to have to go away, but that they wanted to get there on their own terms and not be pressured by people that weren't down there with them. And again, that's nice to say, but then it's like, well, so then generations of people just stay slaved and beaten because you're not ready for it. So screw you. But right. it's for, but yeah. it's, that, that that seemed to be, uh, and again, that, and that's probably was the same argument I guess people use when they talk about, oh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. And it's like, well, states' rights to do what? Get rid of slavery. Or, yeah, have, right. Have and slaves. also it was about slavery. Like, what's the... No, right, right. What's the quote about how, like, the cornerstone of the Confederacy should be that black people are inferior and that their natural place is to be subjugated to white people? Right, right. Like, okay, yes, states' rights, but also, like, it was slavery, too. Like, it... It's ignorant to say otherwise. No, right, right, right. I, I, I'm just saying the same thing. I guess I think they might try to argue, well, we were going to get rid of it eventually someday. Why would you have to take away our rights to do that on our own? And it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's like, well, you had, you had like <laughs> 250 years. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, uh, so the context uh, leading up to the film, and actually the context leading up specifically to Bleeding Kansas, and again, mm. this is stuff that, Having grown up in Kansas, I feel like I was definitely just peripherally aware of and not necessarily, I don't know, I, I, it's kind of embarrassing, I, but also I don't think our fellow Kansans are much better off than we are as far as having all this stuff uh, down pat. So I'm going to start back, basically Missouri Compromise of 1820, which basically said that after we introduced Missouri as a slave state to keep the numbers balanced... We're going to, or we're basically, because this is Congress saying, we're, we will allow Missouri to be a slave state to keep everything, quote, balanced with senators and all that. But after Missouri, hence the name of the compromise, there will be no new slave states north of the, the 3630 latitude line. Right. And then basically because of that, everything west of the Missouri River, so you kind of have the Mississippi, you know, you start, you're starting to get like, you have stuff there with Louisiana and Missouri, and um, I don't think Iowa became a state for a while yet, but there was these kind of territories. Everything west of the Missouri River, which is like Kansas, Nebraska, Dakotas, Oklahoma, was just kind of left unorganized because there was there weren't even territories yet. It was also this Louisiana, this leftover bit of the Louisiana Purchase, <laughs> the bulk of the Louisiana Purchase. Because you couldn't even organize it into a territory, because even before a territory is a state, you'd have to say whether it's slave or free. And there basically weren't right. enough votes in Congress because they didn't from the South. So basically the South was never going to agree to organize these into territories because then they would just might be free territories. So basically it just kind of stayed in limbo and this vast tract of land was just kind of not dealt with at all until thirty years later. In uh, 1854, we get to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, where uh, right. Stephen Douglas of Illinois, of the famed Stephen or Lincoln Douglas debates uh, before th that had happened, um, he says, "Hey, okay, let's organize this into two territories, basically from what is the current southern Kansas border all the way up to the Canadian border. We're going to call that two territories." 
One is Kansas, one is Nebraska, and we will just let, instead of this, you know, whatever Missouri Compromise said, you know, we'll forget about that. Let's just say that the people who live there, obviously, they just get to vote themselves whether or not they want slaves or not. Right. They called it popular sovereignty. Exactly. So how can anybody have a problem with the people deciding for themselves? It's democracy. Everybody wins. Right. And... It passes because the South is like, heck yeah, that's way better than Missouri Compromise. We like this. And so the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. And one of the videos I was watching was kind of saying that, like, there's obviously not one cause of the Civil War. But if you had to pick one cause of the Civil War, it's the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Right. And it it leads directly to bleeding Kansas. Oh, directly directly yeah, yeah, yeah because as because as soon as that happens it's like oh sweet all i have to do and these are both sides saying this all i have to do is make sure that everyone who disagrees with me is either dead or leaves kansas and then me and all my friends can just vote to make this state a free state if i want that or a slave state if i want that it's like all i have to do is just get rid of everyone that disagrees with me Right. So it became less about the people who already lived in Kansas deciding what they wanted Kansas to be and more about people from all over the country flocking to Kansas to try to swing the vote. It's kind of the ultimate purple state situation where the whole country is turned to Kansas. Case in point, John Brown, not from Kansas. He was living in New York at the time. And as soon as the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he's like, oh, now me and all my sons are going to move to Kansas and start killing slavers. Right. And the uh, the Republican Party, so the Whig Party had already kind of started to die out by, by this point. Um, we've already had our last Whig president we talked about last time. And then uh, the Republican Party is founded basically in direct reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and polls yeah. uh, abolitionists from kind of all over the country, the North and the South. The, the Republican Party essentially becomes the abolitionist party, and this that's how it's founded. Right. And uh, Nebraska not really involved because so they had the two territories. Because Nebraska was far enough north, I think the South just kind of conceded that it would go free. But with Kansas being mm-hmm. right on that thirty six thirty parallel, right, right next to Missouri, yeah, right. We're like, okay, this is this is going to be a battleground state, and <laughs> which is more literal than it was back then. Or what than it yeah. is today. And uh and then Missouri especially Missouri is thinking like, well shoot, if Kansas goes free, we're surrounded by free states. We that's a lot of pressure. That could be dangerous. We so you had yeah. these they would call them border ruffians, where a lot of Missouri folk that would do raids on free towns and free settlements in uh into Kansas. And the Kansas at Kansans at the time became known as Jayhawkers. Right, yeah. Specifically the pro the pro abolitionist ones. Sorry. Right? Sorry, yes. Specifically the abolitionists in Kansas, right. We're called Jayhawkers. Jayhawkers and eventually shortened to Jayhawk as it became the the mascot of right. the University of Kansas. And when the University of Kansas is in Lawrence and Lawrence was like one of the main strongholds for abolitionists in Kansas. Like that's one of the the, one of the centers for abolitionist thought in Kansas was Lawrence. Yes. And so that's where the university is now. Right. And 20, 30 years ago, whenever it was, when Lawrence added a second high school, there was already Lawrence High forever. They added a new high school because they were so big. The new high school that's there today is Lawrence Free State High School. 
I mean, like mm-hmm. it's this this stuff is very much rooted in Kansas, specifically northeastern and uh, his, Kansas history and Lawrence Lawrence Kansas and and all that. And there's the Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence as well. <laughs> oh yeah, all that. Yeah, every, everything's very much themed themed around that for sure. Yeah. Since we brought it up, I will. I I, I would the history of the Jayhawk term is actually I, I'll mention right now. It's actually a bit uncertain. Like it started getting used as a term. But no one really knows why that was the term that was used. So, like, it sounds like it got popular after some guy was giving a kind of a emphatic speech, like a call to action for the abolitionists, and referenced something called like an an Irish Jayhawk as being like you know fierce and going after its opponents and something like that. And so the the people who kind okay. of followed suit is like, oh yeah, we're Jayhawks like that, but like. It's not a real bird, so if like he said that he mentioned this bird in the speech, like there's no such thing as an Irish Jayhawk. So it's like, right? Where did he get this term? And it's not a real thing. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point, and it's like it's important to to kind of like identify that too. Like there there is no actual. It's not like you know like a a team that is like the like Missouri is the Tigers. Like there is an actual animal called a tiger. Right. Kansas is the Jayhawks. There is no bird called the Jayhawk. Right, right. Like their mascot is a bird, but that's not like there is no real bird that's red and blue like a Jayhawk like that. <laughs> right. So there's basically just a lot of theories. There's, you know, there's some that it's like, okay, what's, you, you have maybe it was almost like a mistake or it's kind of this idea derived from a blue jay and a, and a and a and a sparrow hawk, which is red, which kind of works for the modern KU colors with the red bird and a and a, and a blue bird. Uh, there's also some thoughts, but there's there's actually no recorded uh, instances, I don't think, of jayhawker being used during the American Revolution. But there is some thought that maybe people who were on John Jay's side, who we men- mentioned with like in the Federalist Papers and all that kind of stuff, John Jay was mm-hmm. a supposed big abolitionist. And so if you also were an abolitionist, you were a Jay Hawker, but there's no, it's not recorded. Well, it's kind of more speculation than actually like yeah. in writing anywhere. And it's also was not considered a compliment for the longest time to like, oh, he's because even like John Jay, I guess, yes, he was an abolitionist, but he wanted more of like a Christian theocracy for the United States as opposed to one of religious freedom. Uh Almost exactly like what John Brown wanted to turn the South into after he uh, freed all the slaves, which I'll go into. There you go. So, (laughs) right. So, again, if you're looking at the term Jayhawker, it almost means it's almost like that extremist thread is maybe even tied in with it. And so it wasn't necessarily uh, seen as a good thing. Uh, And then when you do when you do, I mean, fast forwarding, we do get to the Civil War, though. That's where I kind of dig this whole the college mascots. The ones to me that are the coolest are the ones that are tied to these history things and that the people yeah. from those states would have had those nicknames well before these colleges even existed. So that like basically these people from Kansas during the Civil War, they're like, ah, he's a Jayhawker. I, people would, it was like the nickname. And I, I saw something else where they talked about it's like, uh, I don't know if it was a Civil War movie or I can't remember what movie I saw it in, but they're like, all right, let's go my Wolverines. And it was like a group from Michigan, Michigan was like in the 1800s and they were all calling mm. themselves the Wolverines. And it's just like, these were the actual nicknames of these places. And so, yeah. Or like Tennessee with the, with the volunteers. The volunteers, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I just think that's so much cooler than, again, not to put more thumb on the scale of the KU versus K-State rivalry, but you know, K-State's just the Wildcats. <laughs> like it's just, that's just a random thing as opposed to like something that's really tied to the history. 
and probably the same thing with in Michigan, you know, with the, the Michigan State Spartans. Hey, you know what? You're cool, but like Spartans are Greek. What are you doing? So <laughs> I don't know. It's, I just think that is kind of cool. Well, as as someone uh, who has a mom and a brother that both went to K-State, I, I just I just have to say that uh, the Wildcats is that's a cool mascot, too. So <laughs> I saw that it's not a cool mascot, <laughs> but it just hasn't had the history for Kansas specifically. Like Jayhawks can be all Kansas. <laughs> And so it's hard to be anti-Jayhawk if you're from Kansas. Sorry if you went to K-State. <laughs> also, not to go super deep into the Kansas stuff, because I don't think most of our listeners are from Kansas, but uh, <laughs> Emaw is the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> for Anyway, it, it's a K-State catchphrase for those that aren't familiar, and I, I just think it's dumb. Anyway, <laughs> all right, where were we? Okay, Kansas, Kansas, Nebraska Act. Kansas, Nebraska Act. <laughs> so you basically uh, you have it just ends up being a very volatile situation in Kansas. Uh, voting fraud and violence become rampant. Even violence that doesn't result in death. So the, the the net result of these years of bloody Kansas is only about fifty six deaths. And that's not to make slight of it. There's obviously plenty of violence that just didn't involve murder. And there was, it's kind of like what we talked about, well, this is like Belfast with the troubles in Northern Ireland. It doesn't seem like as many deaths as you would think, but it's not because it was one big battle. It was just like a murder here, a murder there, three murders there. And that is right. kind of yeah. a lot of incidents that add up to, add up to 56. And even if the body count isn't necessarily crazy high, just the fear that you would have had living in that time it's like yeah. you know yeah not it's not like everyone's dying all the time but like you never knew when the next attack or you know raid or whatever was going to happen right random guys from missouri might just come and burn your farm down for no reason yeah they didn't kill they anybody. just might ride by and just shoot you yeah exactly right right and which, which kind of you think about the uh ku mizzou rivalry it's like yeah that dates back to when we were actually killing each other. Right, it, yeah, it basically traces its roots all the way back to the 1850s when, yeah, people from Kansas and people from Missouri were doing, like, cross-border raids to, like, yeah, murder each other. Oh, and so now it's just, crazy. you know, now it's just, like, football and basketball. <laughs> but it's like... <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, so even, there was even two two rival, and I had never heard this before, two rival capitals even set up. You basically have the abolitionist side voting for and setting up a abolitionist capital and you have the pro-slavery side voting for and setting up a pro-slavery capital almost kind of like when there was the avignon papacy and you had two different popes for a while mm. it's like you had two different governors in kansas for if i and again if I, if I understood this correctly that's that was the way i read it and just basically each side just didn't acknowledge the other uh as having any actual authority so then the violence even kind of ex- exceeds expectations. They didn't. No one actually wanted to kill each other at first, even though they're rushing. Remember, this, this is before the Civil War. Everyone's rushing to the state. It's not even with murder in mind at first. It is obviously with intimidation in mind. Right. It's just numbers. Right. It's a just numbers thing. Voting power. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It's just yeah, intimidation. Sure. But now at the same time, where both sides also weren't even necessarily what you think. So the Missouri border ruffians, most of them weren't even slaveholders. They just were from the South and wanted to own the libs. (laughs) And basically, yeah. And before you think then all the abolitionists were all the good guys, well, a lot of them kind of didn't want slaves because they didn't want black people in Kansas. They wanted Kansas to be all white. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's wild. 
or even even if they do have you know like like John Brown you know he had a legitimate interest in freeing slaves but it didn't necessarily come from a place well i mean it came from a place of equality but also because that equality only went as far as his like religious fundamentalism so like he wanted because he thought that that god's law forbade slavery that's why you know that's why he went to do because he, he wanted to set up not only a state where slavery was illegal, but also like saying cuss words is illegal or like premarital right. sex is illegal. Like he right. was just he, he was it was it was all based in in his religious fervor. Right. Not necessarily like a, a pure like human rights thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so the last thing I actually mentioned before I'll kick it over to you for kind of a full John Brown story is uh. So in uh, May of 1856, amid all the stuff we've been talking about, everybody rushing to Kansas, there's a siege of Lawrence in May of 1856, and the slave side basically destroys Lawrence. Keeping in mind, Lawrence is only two years old at this point. And then also back in D.C., there's an attack on an abolitionist senator that nearly kills him. Mm -hmm. And so the whole nation is kind of at this fever pitch and this is when John Brown enters the picture. So the film does cover more time than you would think, and it gets the timeline all over the place. Uh, well, yeah, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about John Brown, what got him to Kansas, his time in Kansas, and everything John Brown. Gotcha. So John Brown was born on May 9th, 1800 um, in Connecticut. He was uh, raised to despise slavery from his parents, his father, was also an abolitionist um, and actually helped slaves on the Underground Railroad um, when he was growing up. Um, in his early life or early adulthood, he worked as a surveyor, as a farmer, um, as a tanner, and he had a, a tannery in Pennsylvania that was also a stop um, on the Underground Railroad as well. While he was always a, you know, was always anti-slavery, he wasn't actually radicalized until 1837 when the abolitionist Elijah Lovejoy was murdered by a group of pro-slavery demonstrators and that event kind of basically galvanized galvanized but it, it basically made John Brown come to the conclusion that the only way to defeat slavery was through violence that it wasn't going to happen just like you're not going to you're not going to defeat it you know in Congress, you're not going to defeat it by onesie twosies on the Underground Railroad escaping to Canada. Basically, you, like the only way to end the institution is with violence. And it's actually, you know, a lot of people will say that, oh, you know, John Brown, he was like this crazy, violent guy. And like all he, you know, he, he wanted to enact all this violence on people. But just keep in mind that he was trying to destroy an institution that itself was very violent. So that's kind of his, his calculus in it. Is, oh, right. And that he mentions in the film, like I've been trying for 30 years to do it peacefully. Those days are over. Right. And the whole time, like any amount of time that he spends non-violently trying to abolish slavery, violence is still being done to slaves that entire time. So his thing is, yes, it's going to be violent, but it will be a lot faster to do it my way than it would be to try and like, you know, 
pass a bill through Congress. Basically, basically that his violence was a necessary evil kind of thing to bring exactly. about the good result. Um, I guess, didn't he, though, weren't, didn't they sometimes kill, like, I don't know, did, would they kill women and children, though, that were pro- on post-slavery sides of things? Like, that's where it gets a little terroristy. I thought. Not women and children, but m- people who maybe were, maybe weren't pro-slavery. Right, that's what I'm saying. There's like, a little bit of that terrorism streak to him. Yeah. And also, like, it, when he... Well, I'll, I'll get into it later. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, there, there is details of specific stuff later on that kind of okay. illustrate, you know, his extreme ways. Um, so anyway, so he... In 1837, after this, uh, Elijah Lovejoy is murdered, he is quoted as saying, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. And so that's kind of his coming out as a radical um, abolitionist. In 1842, he moved from Ohio, uh, his farm in Ohio, to Springfield, Massachusetts, which was kind of a center of abolitionist thought in the Northeast. And it was here that he became even more radicalized and attended lectures by people like Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and William Lloyd Garrison. And he actually later on tried to recruit Frederick Douglass to help him enact his slave rebellion. Uh, so he was like, you know, personally getting involved with these famous abolitionist uh, thinkers and writers of the time. He was involved in a farming community called Timbuktu in northern New York, where there was a, a rich anti-slavery guy who gave a bunch of free land to blacks in New York and also to runaway slaves to kind of help them um, establish their own farms and communities. And so John Brown was helping out with this uh, with this effort, and he was uh, farming there for a little while. And it was during this time that the Fugitive Slave Law was passed um, in 1850, and that was part of the Compromise of 1850, where Congress basically said it, it, all of these... All these acts around this time, like the Fugitive Slave Law, the Kansas, uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, you know, the Compromise of 1850, it's all kind of like, they're these efforts to stave off a civil war as long as possible. And to not appease, but also not antagonize, and trying to walk that tightrope of having half the country be free states and half the country be slave states. So the Fugitive Slave Law basically said that even if a slave escaped from the South to a free state, that it was still against the law to not return that slave back to their rightful owner. Hmm. Right. So in response to this, John Brown started a an organization known as the Subterranean Passway, which was basically the violent militant ripoff of the Underground Railroad. <laughs> so... They were, it was basically the Underground Railroad, but with knives and swords and guns as well. And instead of being a passive thing where, like, slaves could, you know, escape to them, they were actually going into slave states and trying to, like, grab slaves and take them back north. Gotcha. Guerrilla-style rescuing of slaves. Right. Yeah, like, like, snatch and grabs, but for slaves. Most of those attempts were unsuccessful. Um, but that was their goal was to like start like being proactive about getting slaves out of the South instead of just like letting them just escape to the North and then helping right. them after they already got there. 
So you already talked about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was also passed during this time. And specifically because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, John Brown moved to Osawatomie, Kansas in 1855. In 1856, you talked about the uh, the caning of that senator, as well as uh, the sacking of Lawrence. Uh, an interesting fact about the sacking of Lawrence, only one person was actually killed, and it was one of the pro-slavery raiders, and he accidentally was killed when they were burning down the Free State Hotel, and it like, oh, like fell on top thought? of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was killed when, like, when the hotel was collapsing, he like was just standing too close and like accidentally was killed. Uh, but he was the only actual casualty of the sacking of Lawrence. But again, just because the death count isn't crazy high, like just because only one guy died there and it was accidental, like that doesn't make the fact that they were like destroying the newspapers and burning down hotels any less terrifying to people that were living there at the time. Right. So John Brown's response to the sacking of Lawrence, uh, he wanted to get revenge. And so a group of men led by John Brown went to. Uh, an area called Pottawatomie, north of the Pottawatomie Creek, and they dragged five guys, five men out of their homes and murdered them with swords, stabbed and chopped them up with swords in front of their families. In I think that was the, the 25th or the 26th of May um, in 1856. And so that also goes to show, like, these guys were, these were guys that John Brown claimed to know were pro-slavery and even if (laughs) even if in john brown's eyes you you know or if you agree that these guys deserved to die because of things that they had done or things that they believed chopping them up with swords in front of their families like that's that's the kind of stuff that john brown does that gets him labeled a terrorist and like gets the government to come after him he's not just like you know, taking them, you know, take them off into the woods and like shoot them, you know, get or like hang them or whatever. Give them like he's making a spectacle of it, right? Oh, big time, big time, yeah, yeah. So that was that's kind of the. I think they even talk about that in the movie, the Potawatomi massacre. I want to say Jeb Stewart, Errol Flynn's character, brings it up to. They him. kind of do some things out of line as part of the out of order. I, th- I thought they mentioned the uh, the battle or whatever a massacre of Osawatomie. I was like they were getting some things okay, maybe, combined. Maybe yeah. it was that too, and I'm just because those sounds familiar or they sound similar. So maybe maybe I'm getting those wires crossed. But so then in uh, June 1856, there's another battle. They call it the Battle of Blackjack. There was a captain, an army captain, Henry Clay Pate who had led a raid um, where he captured two of John Brown's sons, and then uh, they were going to attack. And actually, this is, it, it happens at um, in Palmyra, Kansas, which is where, in the movie, that big shootout and fire in the barn occurs. Yeah. There was an action, there was a raid by the army, by this Captain Pate, on palmyra on this stronghold at palmyra and john brown successfully defended the stronghold ended up taking pate and 22 of his troops prisoner and then traded them for his sons didn't the movie flip that and say that john brown had raided that town even though it was an abolitionist town i was so confused by that yeah that is and that's that's a, a town that was the actual town that was raided in the movie i'm talking about the the farmhouse with the barn where they're going to hang jeb stewart okay and yeah, then the yeah, army yeah. shows up that's okay. at Palmyra because they that they find out where they are because those two 
or he rides into town to try and find out where John Brown is, and the guys at the barbershop recognize the brand on his on his horse as oh, a, yeah, as an yeah, army yeah, brand, yeah. and they capture Jeb Stewart. So like none of none of that happened. None of that is historically accurate. But the fact that there was an army raid on a John Brown abolitionist stronghold near Palmyra, Kansas, that is accurate. Okay, but like the details are are not. And I will well, uh, just because they mentioned it because that's not a town I had ever heard of before. Palmyra, Kansas is now Bowling City, Kansas, just south of right. Lawrence. Yeah. R- really, really good track team. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so John Brown leaves Kansas um, after fighting in Osawatomie, claims the life of his son, Frederick. Um, he ends up leaving Kansas. And actually, that was a battle. So there was fighting on the outskirts when John Brown's son gets killed. And then there's like, basically both sides are like, gearing up for this huge fight when the governor shows up convinces everybody not to fight and says anyone who was fighting before you get clemency basically we're just going to call it a clean slate from here on and just don't have this battle and everyone basically says oh okay we won't we won't have this battle at Osawatomie so it turns out even though there were people killed and one of them was John Brown's son it could have been a lot worse but luckily the the governor was able to convince everybody to kind of hang it up and go home. He briefly returns to Kansas in 1858 to do, you know, more like anti-slavery raids and stuff. But then this is when he starts to get really serious about leading a slave revolt in the South and actually ending the institution of slavery once and for all in the United States. And his vision for it was to basically start a small slave revolt and then get more slaves to join them and then make it bigger and bigger until they freed all the slaves, killed all the slavers, and then set up their own country that is basically a religious theocracy in the South where everyone is free. But like I said before, not only are you not allowed to own slaves, but you're not allowed to use any bad language. That's against the law. Um, indecent exposure, that's against the law. Premarital sex, that's against the law. I would assume practicing any religion other than what John Brown deems as acceptable is against the law. So isn't indecent exposure against the law today? <laughs> well, that's just it's it's a uh, yeah, but it like he he actually wrote a constitution. Weird, weird one for your list. So okay, he wrote a constitution okay. oh. for the country. For his new country, and that was one of the things he specifically mentioned. Gotcha. Not like a local misdemeanor, like this is like one of the commandments for our new country. Right, right, right. Like in <laughs> in the constitution of this, it was like any, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. basically any indecent acts, quote, quote unquote indecent acts, is like at a national level for this for his new country are, is going to be right. illegal. You're, you're, you're peeing in the alley kind of thing, indecent exposure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he starts recruiting fighters and trying to raise money um he approached frederick Douglass, but frederick Douglass declined to help him out he just thought that it was you know too extreme too radically violent too extreme um he did get harriet tubman to agree to help him she was going to help him by smuggling weapons and free and freed slaves to him to build up his forces he uh oh and another thing that we see in the movie that is actually historically accurate is when he meets that the secret six that group of like wealthy New Englanders who's who were abolitionists who were going to fund his uprising in the South. 
Okay, yeah. So his plan was to start by raiding the armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which is in present-day West Virginia. But he kind of figured, like, that's that's the place that's going to have the most, well, pardon the pun, but the most bang for our buck as far as getting a bunch of rifles. Because that's going to be, like, the hardest thing is to get enough arms in one shot to actually be able to arm enough slaves to have a successful oh, right. slave revolt that isn't just going to immediately be put down by the government. So, like we see in the movie, the armory is guarded by one guy, and so they show up, he's easily overpowered. Um, they do cut the telegraph lines and block the bridges, and they did actually take hostages from the town, including one guy who was a descendant, or maybe not a direct descendant, but like a nephew or something of George Washington. Um, just another little like uh-huh. uh, historical t- connection there. But the militia, the local militia, hears that there's you know that there's a bunch of uh, abolitionists that have raided the armory, so they show up. Uh, this is on October sixteenth, eighteen fifty nine. Is the day that they actually take the armory. On the 17th, the militia shows up and surrounds them. And then on the 18th, Robert E. Lee shows up uh, with Marines from the Marine barracks in Washington, D.C. at 8th and I, which is is still there. It's where, like, the silent drill platoon, that's where they're at now. But the whole thing with, like, all these cavalry guys from Kansas are, like, showing up. That that didn't happen. Uh, that that was not true. Although Jeb Stewart was actually there. I gonna say Jeb Stewart was, but yeah, yeah. Jeb Stewart was actually there, but that was more of like a happenstance thing than it was like a he was pursuing John Brown. You know, he, right. he was just like he heard that John Brown was at Harper's Ferry. He asked Robert e. Lee if he could like go with him to help him. You know, capture him, and so uh, eventually the militia and the uh, government troops overpower John Brown's forces, and he's captured. They put him on trial, and he is very quickly convicted of murder, treason, and conspiracy on November 2nd, 1859, and then is ultimately hanged one month later on December 2nd, 1859, with John Wilkes Booth and General Stonewall Jackson were both uh, in attendance at his hanging. And uh, just like we see in the movie... He was very, uh, oh, what's the word that I'm looking for? He was very resolute, kind of unfazed by the prospect of being hanged. And uh, in his final speech that he gave in the courtroom towards the end of it, he has a quote here. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country, whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. And so that was his thing. He's like, basically, do what you gotta do. Then they hanged him. Um, there's actually a cool video where David Strathairn, like, recites that whole that whole speech oh, huh. on stage for some event. I'm not sure what it is, uh, but it's it's kind of a cool video to watch. But, yeah, so that's John Brown. One of my, in one of my oldest memories is visiting the Capitol building in Topeka when I was in grade school. And I mean, I mean probably more like kindergarten side of grade school than, than, than anything else. And uh, 
There's that giant mural, mural, oh. famous mural of of John Brown. Oh, is that the shirt you're wearing? Is even that I'm same wearing, mural? I'm wearing it. Yeah, I'm wearing a a t-shirt. Well, it's a. Does he have a head, a beer instead of a Bible? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Wichita Brewing Company t-shirt, but it's got John Brown on it, and it, he's holding two mugs of beer. But yeah, in that uh, in that mural you're it's talking a, about, he has a Bible, like a Bible in one and hand, a yeah, and a rifle, which that. That was oh that was another thing that I had on here that whole thing about them shipping the rifles in oh. crates marked Bibles yeah that's real and so that uh, that rifle that he's holding in the mural and the rifles that we see in the movie they're Sharps rifles they're sharp like breech loading rifles but they call them Beecher's Bibles because there was a wealthy abolitionist named Henry Ward Beecher who during the bleeding Kansas era would ship a bunch of weapons to abolitionists in Kansas and he would put them in crates marked Bibles to kind of like ease suspicion of what was actually being shipped. So the rifle itself was called a Beecher's Bible? They would call the they would call the rifles Beecher's Bibles, but they're huh. they're sharps they're sharps rifles, but they would call it Beecher's Bibles because this this guy, Henry Ward Beecher, would ship a bunch of them huh. to abolitionists in crates marked Bibles. Yeah, and, and and on the mural too, and I don't know if it shows in your T-shirt as well, but he, he was definitely always. It's always this again. You're, you're like when you're like five, six, looking at this mural, like he, he's fierce. This is an in, this intensity just kind of oozes off of this guy, and and probably what is fitting. You're not sure, man. Is this guy a hero or a villain? Like it's even it's kind of very much in the artwork there, and so he's kind of seen as this icon from Kansas history. And I would say he is kind of lionized, but I do think that the, oh, not contradiction, but just the, the, the complexity of whether this is a good guy or a bad guy is kind of there in the art that, yes, he was fighting for a cause because, I mean, ultimately, Kansas does end up entering the Union as a free state. I mean, like, that's that's the side that, quote, wins. Okay, so yeah, so actually, to kind of finish up the non-John Brown side of Bleeding Kansas here then... Yes, as we kind of see in the movie, so when you had these, uh, the free versus the slave people kind of coming in, it was basically militias. And so the new governor, and I, I didn't write down the year, but basically after the Caesar Lawrence, new governor kind of disbands the local militia and says, we need the federal army in here so they don't have a dog in the fight. And so the idea of bringing troops in from the federal army is accurate. And then James Buchanan is elected president in 56. And he removes the level-handed Kansas governor and uh, who had done this. And then basically they want to have a new vote in Kansas with the new governor. And I guess kind of because Buchanan was pro-slavery. All right. Does Kansas want to be a slave state? Check A. Or check B if you want it to be kind of a slave state. Like it was, <laughs> there, was there was no free state option uh, when this new vote com- came, comes around. So during the during lockdown, I was kind of driving around Kansas and trying to explore some new places. So I did go and visited one of John Brown's houses in Osawatomie, or like the place he stayed in Osawatomie. Uh, you can you can yeah. visit that house is like a little museum, mm-hmm. and there's all this stuff there about. I don't I don't remember basically all the stuff you've talked about. I'm sure. Um, then the other place I visited was kind of right near the Missouri border, the Marita sign uh, massacre site. Uh, there was a massacre there in 1858. Uh, again, I don't think it was one John Brown was involved in, but just another one of those kind of events, very similar to what you were saying there, where a bunch of guys were executed, and one of them even like you know played dead, so he got away and all that kind of stuff. And so I visited that site as well. 
And then you mentioned Brown is executed in, in 1859. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln is elected president. And we mentioned that the Republican Party was founded as a reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So it's very much an anti- it wasn't just that the Republican Party platform was anti-slavery. Like, the Republican Party was anti-slavery. Like, its, it's founding principle right. was that. And then you're electing their yeah. guy president. Screw you. Succession starts uh, immediately. Kansas joins the Union in 1861 uh, as a free state, which effectively ends the bleeding Kansas phase. On January 29th. There you go. Now becoming uh, <laughs> whatever state of the union it was in the in the ranking there. The 34th. So yes, six years, 54 deaths, 56 deaths. It just raised the tensions. And a lot of the stuff I was in the research was just talking about how this was the war before the war. Or that some people will talk about certain battles. I forget which one in particular. I don't know if it was the Siege on Lawrence or a different one. That basically, oh, this conflict in Kansas, some historians argue, was the first battle of the Civil War. And I think it was because you had anti-slavery and pro-slavery forces in battle. Therefore, that's a battle of the Civil War, even though it was beforehand. Yeah. So just kind of then ironing out some of the remaining details here. So uh, Jeb Stewart, which is actually J, I forget what the J-E-B stands for, but it's like initials. His initials are J-E-B Stewart, so he went by Jeb. He does end up finding on the Confederate side in the war. In the film, this kind of buddy group of U.S. soldiers that, again, in, ostensibly don't have a dog in the fight. They're just kind of fighting for law and order. But, they, again, that pits them against the abolitionists in this film. And they go see that Native American prophet woman who kind of says, like, hey, yeah. soon you'll all be fighting each other. And they're like, ha, right. that, that'll be the day. I'm like, which is so ridiculous because even no matter how good of friends they were, they all would know that this was on the horizon. Like, the Civil right. War wasn't a surprise. Yeah. Right. Which actually kind of makes the ending of this movie dark. Because it's like, yeah. at the end of the movie, it's like, it's like, oh, we oh we saved the day. We defeated that terrorist John Brown. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, two years or a few years after this, yeah. they're going to be on different sides of a Civil War. And they even, they even name them. Well, I think, it is it Stuart is like... Who, us? Pickett, Hood, Sheridan, Longstreet? Yeah, right. It's like, right. yeah, three of those were Confederate, and then uh, Sheridan and Custer were both on the Union side. So it's like, right. out of those, out of all those guys, like, there was a split. <laughs> and, it's just, and they probably did that on purpose. That's probably why they even pull, like, a Custer into the movie in the first place. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jeb Stewart did graduate Westport in, West Point in 1854. Uh, and he did get shipped to Kansas to deal with some of the conflicts there. But the timeline isn't quite what we see in the film. He actually got there before uh, a lot of this stuff was was going down. Um, and he was on hand at Harper's Ferry when John Brown was captured. But like you said, more of a kind of just a coincidence. And just little little timeline things like the girl in the movie who's named after Kit Carson. Which is so weird. Why did they do that? That made no sense to me. Because it's a weird detail. Right. She's fictional. Right. She's fictional. She, they made her up. Jeb Stewart had a real wife, by the way. Right. But they made this girl up, but then named the character after a man. Right. Named her Kit Carson Holiday. And it's like, they and they even have a whole scene explaining, oh, well, my dad was friends with Kit Carson, and they named me before I was born. It's like, 
Okay, that all sounds like that would be interesting if that was actually a real person, like a, a right. real woman at this time whose name was Kit Carson Holiday. But it's not. It's completely made up. And it's like, why do they do that? That's such a yeah. strange choice. I, Kit's okay as a as a as a, as a girl's name though, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's not like her name is like Alfred or something. But still, like <laughs> Kit Carson is a famous person. Like the fact that they chose to name this female character after a a famous man frontiersman it, it that made no sense to me i don't know why they did that and by the way that's not it has no, this is, yeah completely made up that's not jeb stewart's wife in real life that's not real <laughs> correct yeah so yeah time timelines all kind of mixed around here so jeb stewart gets before the big influx of troops even though he is assigned there the when they're on the train they there's there's talk of that battle of osawatomi but that was after he would have gotten to kansas yeah. not before and he was, for example, so the Battle of Osawatomi was in August of 1856. Well, Stuart was married in Kansas in November of 1855, the year before. So while there's a lot of kind of things right, there's definitely some uh, things moved around or left out completely. So in addition to fighting to keep the peace between the free staters and the, and the, and the pro-slavery side, there's also lots of conflicts with Native Americans, and there's not a Native American in this film. Right. Uh, in 1861, uh, Jeb Stewart resigns from the army because he's not part of the U.S. anymore. He goes to join the Confederacy. Right. And we uh, will actually we'll see him again in the film Gettysburg. Yes. But we won't have a lot of time to talk about him then. So I'll just add that in the Civil War... He was an expert at something called cavalry screening, which I was not familiar with. Do you know what that refers to? Uh, no. It, it's pretty obscure. I don't necessarily expect you to. So basically, he was in charge of uh, cavalry. He kind of worked in tandem with uh, Robert E. Lee. And so wherever Lee's forces were, Stuart would spread out the cavalry in kind of a wide perimeter to kind of scout, but it was more than just scouting. It was kind of this defensive bubble. And whenever they encountered Union troops, instead of just running in report with small groups like, uh, you know, scouts would do, this was decent-sized cavalry forces spread out around that would engage at first for like just a moment to see how the Union responded to get an accurate count of what they actually had to fight with in that Mm. spot. And then they would beat it back, report to Lee, and tell him exactly where to be and with how many troops to beat that size force. And so gotcha. Stuart was kind of like a genius of doing this right. throughout the early stages of the war to a lot of success. Basically, what I kind of read was Egan, he was considered one of the best generals uh, on either side. But by the end of the war, I think the Union had caught up to his tactics. And I don't remember the details of how they kind of countered it. He was killed. Well, yes, he was killed. But I think even before then, they had kind of caught up, and his tactics got less successful as as the war went on, I guess I should say. Oh, okay. I see what you Yeah. And he wasn't necessarily able to adjust. Uh, yeah, he was wounded at the Battle of Yellow Tavern in Virginia and died the next day, May of 1864. He was buddies with Stonewall Jackson. Uh, and then there's lots of towns out in, like, Virginia. Sorry, probably not lots of towns, but there are towns, highways, schools, all named after uh, Jeb Stewart uh, out there today. And again, he will he will show up when we talk about the film Gettysburg here during the war. George Custer, again, we kind of liked Reagan. He's pretty charming in this movie. He graduated from West Point, but like you said, 1861, uh, so much later. Uh, and he's also at the bottom of his class. That's actually something that I noticed looking at, because I, 
I made little notes about all those other generals that they named, and like all of them, like to a man, where it was like, yeah, oh, and this guy was like in the lower part of his class and had a ton of demerits, and like this guy was <laughs> constantly getting in trouble, and this guy was like got in trouble for this and this and this. It's like all of these guys who later go on to be these like famous generals when they were at West Point were like shitheads basically yeah, like yeah it's bizarre they they weren't getting haircuts and they were like bad at drill and like they you know they didn't you know didn't like all their studies and it was like they were getting in fights or pulling pranks on each other like they were you know just like little honorary honorary kids when they were at west point but yeah there's there's no reason at all for custer to be in this movie he's just too young he does fight for the union in the civil war because he's from ohio and honestly, we don't really need to talk about him because we're going to get to him later in the timeline when we talk about the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. So he'll pop right. back up here in another another 15, 20 years on our timeline. We meet on the train on their way to Kansas. We meet Cyrus Holliday, uh, who is a real person. He is a railroad basically administrator. I, at first I thought in the movie they were kind of setting him up to be like a railroad tycoon. He's actually more just a guy who worked for the railroad, uh, but he's also one of the founders of Topeka, Kansas, and did move to Kansas in 1854, so that kind of times out uh, pretty well. There are some things named after him throughout the country, but the one I thought worth noting is uh, there are railroad cars that take you around at Disneyland, or like as they name the different cars on the trains at Disney, Okay, and some of the cars are named like Cyrus Holiday, or like is he's like on some of the oh. trains. It's like yeah, yeah. So huh. another Disney reference uh, there. Robert E. Lee again. We will talk about uh, later, but I did want to at least kind of mention during the five year window of the film here today what he was up to. He was in charge of West Point for three years, including 1854, like we see in the film. So that is accurate that he could have been talking to well. <laughs> It's accurate that he would have been there in the office, but all those guys weren't in that class, like we said. Right, yeah. And then after that, he got commissioned, just the Army Commission out in Texas, which he preferred to being, he would prefer to being in the field to being in an office. But then his father-in-law died, and he had to go deal with some estate issues. Again, all this is still in that five-year window, so I'm not kind of giving a big, vast thing here. just what Lee was up to during this movie. And again, we I mentioned these guys are complicated. So I mean, even Robert E. Lee, famous... Confederate general, or I mean, he's the Confederate general. His views on slavery were complicated. He was actually anti-slavery, but he thought it would be abolished through just everyone's good Christian nature, and eventually it would be booted. And he also thought that it was worse on whites than it was on blacks because they're the ones that had to man this hassle of administrating slavery. And again, I mentioned him dealing with his father-in-law's estate. A lot of that was even like dealing with these slaves that were supposed to be freed, but like the farm was in debt, so we couldn't afford to free them. So he's like, well, like, I did promise I'd free them, but I'm going to make it later than they thought, so they're all pissed off. And so he's like, oh, this is so stressful yeah. for white people having to deal with these slaves. Right, yeah. <laughs> he also thought the blacks who were in slavery, he was very much a, they're better off here than they would be in Africa, and that the discipline of slavery will ultimately benefit them as a race. So even though he's against it, he definitely had some ideas that don't hold up, up right. today. He's like, slavery is bad, but it's not that bad. And it's worse for whites. Right, yeah. Right. And again, he wanted just, the good Christians will eventually put a stop to it, and not the not that anything needs to be mandated by the government. And again, we will talk about Lee plenty more as we get to the Civil War here. Jefferson Davis, we see, he gives the, he gives the address at West Point in 1854. 
which I mean, it's possible. I, I kind of tried to look back. The records of the West Point commencement address speaker only go back to 1894. So who knows? Um, and then uh, Davis himself did go to West Point, graduate from West Point. He would have been the Secretary of War at that time, though. Oh, sorry. Yes, I do have that. Yes, that was in my notes as well. He he was the Secretary of War for the United States uh, in 1854. Correct. Um, and again, we'll get to him more later, I'm sure, when we get to the Civil War. But I did want to note that his daughter did not marry George Custer. <laughs> that was so weird. Another thing in the movie, they have yes. they have Kit Holiday introduce this this random new girl because the 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 prophet said that he would meet some blonde girl, and so Kit right. probably pulls over some blonde girl to meet uh, George Custer, and then that's where he said like he he's bragging, and then go meets her dad and realizes her dad is Jefferson Davis, and it's like that's all just made up. There's just no reason for any yeah. of that to be in the movie. So they had they included Cyrus Holiday and Jefferson Davis, both influential historical figures, and then gave them both fictional daughters to take yes. the place of Jeb Stewart and George Custer's real life wives. But also George Custer would have only been fifteen at the time that this was taking place. <laughs> it's just so strange. Right. It's so strange. Right. It's definitely just a movie. And then also Jefferson Davis is another one who kind of had Again, there's more nuance here than you'd expect for someone who becomes the president of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis did not support secession. He did not want the South to secede from the Union. He was heartbroken when that happened. Well, I mean, he was a his whole life. He was a a, a public servant. True. For true. in for the United States. Right. Like we're talking about someone who's the you know works his way up to being the Secretary of War for the United States. Like he clearly you know, had a love for his country. Right, right. So it's, it's probably easy to forget that when this splintering happens, and again, we are definitely on the cusp. We will be starting the Civil War next time. So we're, it's just interesting that all these guys were proud Americans who wanted a united country. But when the split did happen, even if guys like Jefferson and probably Lee didn't want that split to happen, once it did they felt more tied to their home state than they did to the United States. And so that's where sure. they found themselves. It wasn't necessarily right. out of they wanted to. Jefferson Davis didn't want to be the president of the Confederacy. He wanted just to help his hometown out, basically, essentially. I just wanted to quickly run through those names when they get the prediction of how they're all going to be fighting each other. So Pickett, he graduated from West Point and was commissioned in 1846. Um, and he ended up fighting for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, Hood, who was uh, uh, Fort Hood in Texas, is named after him. He graduated from West Point in 1853, also fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Sheridan, he was in the same class as Hood, also 1853, but fought for the Union during the Civil War. And then the last name on there, uh, Longstreet, he's actually the oldest one out of all of them. He graduated from West Point in 1842 fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War, but he is actually one who I wanna I wanna mention here and maybe a nominee for uh, our most interesting people. So he graduated from West Point in 1842, has a whole career basically in the army, then leaves, fights for the Confederacy during the Civil War, but because he was a year ahead of Ulysses S. Grant and was really good friends with him, after the war is over, he gets involved in U.S. politics again in the Republican Party hmm. because he is good friends with Ulysses S. Grant and also, I guess, wrote a bunch of stuff about how bad of a general or he was like critical of Robert E. Lee during the war. So it kind of like re ingratiated himself with 
the U.S. with Northerners again, and then ends up leading a black militia against the anti-Reconstructionist White League. So, like, leads a black militia against white supremacists to crush a coup attempt, a white supremacist coup attempt in Louisiana in 1874, and then Mm. goes on to serve as the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire from 1880 to 1881. Huh. What was his first name? Uh... I want to say George, but I don't think that's right. Hang on. You're talking about anybody born before 1900. There's a the oh, 30% James. <laughs> James. <Kay>. James. So <laughs> not, I wasn't that far off. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. I definitely always, yeah. I mean, I, several nominees from this movie, honestly, for interesting people. I mean, Jeb Stewart, and I even kind of jotted down, you know, Frederick Douglass, who just in case we don't talk about him later, I'm sure we will, but definitely lots of interesting John Brown is pretty interesting John of a Brown guy. John Brown, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jeb Stewart is, you know, there's other guys like him, I guess. But again, he's, yeah, lots, lots of these guys. Yeah, the only other thing I was going to mention is uh, just, yeah, towns they mentioned in the film and when they were founded. Lawrence and Leavenworth, Kansas were both founded in 1854. Wichita, they mentioned possibly take, connecting the railroad through Wichita Oh, that right, seems yeah. to be an inaccuracy. Wichita wasn't founded until 1868, and I don't think that, you know, a decade before that, there would have been any kind of significant presence. There wasn't, like, to, a uh, settlement or anything there? Yeah, not not that I could find significant enough to be talking about putting a railroad through there. Oh, okay. So, and then they mentioned there's, like, there's like a little battle in the film at, like, they say, like, the Delaware Crossing. There was a, yeah. and there, and I, there was, like, a Delaware league in like hype for like sports in kansas but there was there's a delaware city ghost town today that was founded in the 1850s and then kind of funny just because they mention it santa fe new mexico was founded in 1610 because you go back <laughs> to the spanish stuff right but then it became part of the u.s in the 1840s following like the mexican-american war and all that stuff we've talked about yeah, uh, they mentioned the Underground Railroad, I think, in the movie, or do, or maybe, or no, maybe it was another video I watched mentioned it. That basically, as you kind of get this free Kansas, so Kansas did become one of the terminuses of the uh, Underground Railroad. Oh, and the other thing I was going to mention is uh, at the end of the movie, we watched it on Amazon Prime or whatever, and uh, the recommended movie it gave me at the end was uh, like you know what you should watch next or whatever was uh, a 1953 film called Kansas Pacific. Uh, but it is a NA slash 35% on Rotten Tomatoes, so not really interested. Oh, boy. But it takes place soon after uh, this film on a different railroad line that uh, that goes, uh, you know, the Kansas Pacific line. So it goes, uh, it also goes through Topeka and Lawrence, but instead of going uh, southwest to Santa Fe, it goes straight to Colorado. And it just kind of looks very much like uh, I-70 today. Like it kind of parallels mm. Uh, that route so it is kind of interesting how these old initially kind of just you know probably fur trapper and then wagon trails become then railroad lines become then interstate highways so it is kind of interesting how these things have a, a history that goes uh goes back so far so yeah definitely a lot to talk about need to talk about our home state of kansas we grew we grew up in kansas and still didn't know a lot of this stuff definitely some interesting people and it is time. I know we, you know, the United States is less than 100 years old, and we're only, you know, 12 or so movies into our timeline now, and we're already at the Civil War. We've talked about largely because just a, a lack of good films about previous times in American history. 
Uh, but yes, it is time to dive in next time to the Civil War. Uh, we will be starting with Gangs of New York, which actually doesn't deal heavily with the Civil War, but it is set uh, at the beginning of the Civil War. Great Martin Scorsese movie with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, and I'm a big fan and excited to talk about it. <laughs>